And we're back with another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm here with my charismatic um, co-hosts, uh, Mario Sakura and Maria Jose Munita. Um, and today we are recapping some of the topics that um, these two will be talking about at the IEA Global Conference on Critical Thinking. And so we're going to hop into the next one, which is cognitive biases. And specifically um, for this one, we start with confirmation bias. So <laughs> what is confirmation bias and why is it important to know about? Well, I, I just want to say, despite your um, use of the adjective. Yeah. Now we were thinking all the time about, like, am I being charismatic enough or not? Like, with that stress of not fulfilling that yeah, idea about ourselves. Yeah, right, <laughs> all right. Uh, confirmation bias. Go ahead, Maria Jose. Okay. So, confirmation bias, it's how we look for ways to justify our existing <laughs> beliefs. Yeah. So, we think. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm a good person and I'll see things that, well, I don't, I'm not there yet, but I do think that I'm a good person and I will see things that confirm that I'm a good person. And when I see things that show that I'm not that much of a good person, I would probably disregard that, not see it. So I, we tend to see what confirms our beliefs and not see what doesn't. So this is one of the ways that the brain makes cognitive dissonance go away, right? We talked about cognitive dissonance last time and confirmation bias is again another non-conscious process that happens in the brain that um, makes cognitive dissonance go away, right? So we see evidence for our beliefs and we don't see evidence against our beliefs. And it's not that we're consciously, you know, sticking our fingers in our ears and going blah, 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 blah. You know, it's not that we actively are ignoring it, although sometimes that can happen as well. But the brain just doesn't, it just filters it out, right? So if we have a, you know, a belief, for example, that, you know, Creek is a four, um, then our brain registers those things that reinforce our belief that he's a four and we do not see things that make us doubt that he's a four. And this is why falsification is so important, right? That we have to look for evidence to, uh, to disprove something we believe because if we don't actively look for it, we won't see it. And it is really interesting how when we have a hypothesis, we'll just see things that confirm it. it yeah. And I've seen it like when somebody says, yeah, I'm a two. And I can easily find things that confirm that there are two. Now, if you start considering another option, immediately you see things that could confirm that other option. It's just the mind is, it's amazing. And, and, and this is one of the things that's at the root of all sorts of stereotyping and prejudices, quite frankly, right? Because, you know, if we think, for example, that all people from um, 
Little Rock, Art. No, where are you from? Creek again? To, to re- remind me of the town, <laughs> Goshen, Indiana. Goshen, <laughs> Indiana, the land of Goshen. Um, yeah, you know, if if we get into our head that all people from Goshen are charming, nice people, then that's not where I thought you were going. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm throwing it up a little bit, right? Having some cognitive dissonance right now. There actually. you go. Right. So, and and then you meet Creek, and you say, well, yeah, sure, all people from Goshen are nice, charming people. And then you see other people from Goshen, and you reinforce it, but you don't see the people from Goshen who are derelicts and bank robbers and ne'er do wells in general. Because it just doesn't fit our view. <laughs> Big word of the day: ne'er do wells. What? No, that's that's the old person phrase of the day. Creek is not the okay. it's not the big word of the day. Yeah. <laughs> You know, right. ne'er do wells and roustabouts, the people your parents always told you to stay away from. <laughs> as in ne'er, as in they never do never. well. Yeah, yeah. You know, people okay. who just you know wow. are low lives and yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> So where have you seen confirmation bias happen? Maybe not just with types, but maybe with instinctual biases. Oh, yeah, this is great. So uh, all preservers are great at cooking, right? Uh, Things like this, right? Where we start to see or we start to assume that people who are preserving are, you know, like to cook, right? Let's put it that way. And so we start to, every time we encounter someone who is a preserver and likes to cook, we say, see, see, they all do it. And we don't see the preservers who don't like to cook. Or I have a tendency to use as a key indicator when I'm assessing someone uh, whether or not people like to do things around the home, right? Self, uh, you know, uh, home projects, you know, rewire their electricity, garden, etc. And for me, that's an indicator that someone may well be a preserver. But every so often you get somebody who doesn't like to do that, but they do so many other things that there's nothing else to think of them as except for a preserver. Okay. So yeah, we like, could like my husband say, who doesn't do any right. of that, but he likes to stay at home. I mean, he enjoys yeah. kind of being yeah. in the nest. Yes. I wasn't complaining, Craig. No, no, that's what it, <laughs> there was a little more emphasis example. on. He doesn't do any of that. Yeah, well, um, that's true, but it was not a complaint. No. Okay, all right. So, why exactly does this particular one matter within the enneagram? Because it shapes our theory and it shapes the way we apply the Enneagram. It shapes what we look for in people. So, for example, you, you know, you, you had somebody on the uh, Fathoms podcast who used the example of a type one who uh, was not neat and orderly and didn't color coordinate their closets or something, right? And and that's absolutely was he right. Talking there about are me? some. Well, see, that's the thing. There are ones out there who don't do these things, right? So if we assume that all ones, yeah, if we assume that ones are neat and tidy and color coordinate their their closets, then we're not going to see the people who are ones, usually navigating ones, who don't do those things, okay? So we have to be really careful about about putting too much weight on any one characteristic and then seeing that characteristic is either confirmation or disconfirmation of an assumption. Yeah, and, and there are ways to work with it. 
like for example when um we're training people and i do that myself when i we tell them okay come up with a first hypothesis of the person's type or instinctual bias and then think about what other options could be possible so have at least two options one alternative to your first hypothesis because that will force you to trick your mind and not fall into confirmation bias because it's so easy to have a hypothesis and then see all the evidence that confirms it it just it, that's how the brain works and we need to be aware of it i see that in myself in in the rushing to a conclusion that's yes. when i fall mostly yes. into confirmation bias yes Absolutely right. And, you know, and this is one of the things about the idea of falsification in general, particularly in science. You can prove anything by looking for positive evidence, but that doesn't make it true, right? So you have to try to disprove your hypotheses, and that gets you closer to the truth. So being aware of our tendency to seek confirming evidence is really, really important in working with the Enneagram. It's a great transition point into the next one, which would be an anchoring bias. So anchoring bias is the tendency for us to kind of hang on to the per first piece of information that we get, right? We give, we give disproportionate weight to our first hypotheses, right? So if I'm interviewing Maria Jose and I start to think in my mind that she's a one, then that becomes the anchor. Or even if somebody told me, oh, Maria Jose is a type one, mm. then that idea is stuck in my brain. And as I'm interacting with her, I'm seeing all of her behaviors through that lens. So here's, a, here's an example of how an anchoring bias can have a real impact on people. So Maria Jose and I have a friend, a woman who thought she was a nine and told us all she was a nine and told everybody she was a nine. And so we start to, you know, just interact with that person as if they're a nine. And then we started seeing behaviors in her that had they become, had they been coming from a nine would have been fairly abrasive, right? I mean, it's like, oh man, you know, there's, there must be something behind that comment because a nine wouldn't say that, right? And then we started to realize that she was actually a five. And then we started to realize, oh, well, she's not a nine striving to feel peaceful who's just saying these abrasive things, she's at a five being objective and stating facts, right? So the anchor in our brain- In a nice way. Person, in a nice way, yeah. I mean, it was there was nothing, there was no malice behind it. There was just awkwardness, right? And so because in our minds, we anchored them or her as a nine, we were completely misinterpreting the behavior instead of stepping back and asking ourselves, where is this really coming from? Okay, so we have to be careful about what ideas get stuck in our head and how they provide a filter for how we interpret everything related to that idea. Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why you need to be careful with assessments. Because yes. once oh, yeah. we get the result of an assessment, uh, it's hard to get that idea off our heads. And even if we do, the person who responded to the assessment, they give so much authority to that result that it's hard to th see anything different. So many times we've seen people go through days of training saying, yeah, I think I'm a four, but the assessment says that I'm a three, so I'm a three. So we need to be careful with that as well. Yeah. That's another kind of anchoring. 
so anchoring in authority is that is is one way of anchoring. What are some other ways of anchoring? Well, authority. You're. I think there you're talking more about a um, an argument from authority, right? Or although that can be an a, a, a an anchor in an authority figure as well as. But it's really about it's it's about recency and getting stuck on an idea and not being able to sway too far from that or roam too far from that because that anchor keeps pulling us back. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Okay. I was talking with a, with a client the other day who had just or recently attended a, a negotiation training and the teacher there said, don't underestimate the power of speaking first. You know, of saying yeah. how much you're willing yeah. to pay first. A lot of people tell you to listen first and all of that. But when you put a number first on the table, it's really hard to get too far away from it. So you need to do it first. And that's anchoring. Yeah, uh, just to, to put some numbers on that. If we, if we, for example, put a price of $100 on something and the other person had been thinking $20, well, now we're negotiating around $100 rather than around $20, okay? So it shifts the price point way up. Well, that's great. Uh, There's another two down. We got a few more to go in the coming weeks. So make sure to join us on the next episode of Awareness to Action Instagram Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 